0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Luke chapter four? It's also printed in the bulletin for you. Luke chapter four, verses one through 15. If you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to keep them open as we'll be skipping around through scripture a little bit. But our main text is Luke four, verses one through 15. 4, verses 1 through 15, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And they took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and all their hands that will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, perhaps some of you, not a lot of you, very young church, but some of you may remember the late 80s, early 90s, bad evangelical Christianity. And there was this lady pastor back in Holland, Michigan, who printed these little bracelets that became very popular for everybody. And they said the letters WWJD. What would Jesus do? And the idea was that, and she had good intentions. She was trying to make her kids more moral by just urging them to be more moral and and following Jesus' example. So they, they had these bracelets, and the idea was you would look at these bracelets every time you were tempted, and you would be a better person just by remembering how good Jesus was at being good. And it, it took on, it caught fire through the churches like a gender reveal party. It just spread <laughs> and it, it went through the churches and it took root and it became a way to read the scriptures. It became a way to come to a text like this and you would read it and you would pick it apart for 10 to 15 life principles on how to be better at not falling to temptation. And then you would move on with your day and you would kind of Sync them all to your bracelet, it it was before technology. But you would sync them to your bracelet or in your mind and you would look at the WWJD bracelet and remember all these texts about how good Jesus was and being good, and that was how you lived your life. But brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit inspired this account to show us so more than WWJD. Now I want to be careful because as a side note, we should be seeking to be more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing to want to be like Jesus. So I'm not condemning wanting to be like Jesus. That would be antinomianism. But the way to become more Christ-like is by reading this text, not as a WWJD text, what would Jesus do? But as a WHJD FMATLA text. (laughs) What has Jesus done for me as the last Adam. What has Jesus done for me as the last Adam? And as we read that, and as we put our faith in him based on that, that's how we become more Christ-like. Because God will save us through faith in his son and work in us to be more like his beloved son by the power of his Holy Spirit. But the way we get there is by reading this, not as if what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done for me as the last Adam? See, the Spirit inspired Luke to show us the beginning of Jesus' ministry as a rewind and a rewrite of history. I know I keep referencing the 90s, but you remember VHS tapes? There were these things where you, you had to wind them back before you could watch them again. And this is sort of what's happening with history here. Luke is taking us through a tour of history where he's going back through all of covenant history. He's rewinding it, and he's replaying it, but now he's taking over it through the life of Jesus. Jesus is being obedient for all people in government history have failed. He's rewinding. He's rewriting. See, Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the last Adam who obeys where first Adam didn't. He gains for us the right to be a new creation. He gains for us the right to be a new creation. Jesus emerges victoriously from a test where Adam failed. First Adam and Israel both failed at this. And because of Jesus' victory where these people had failed, he earns the right to begin his ministry. So as we think about this passage, the main thesis we should think about in this passage is that because Jesus won the victory here in the desert, because Jesus won the victory here in the desert, we can rest in his obedience on our behalf, we can rest in his obedience on our behalf, and we can rest in hope He can and will bring about the new creation He has earned for us, and He has promised us. Because Jesus won, we can rest in His obedience on our behalf, and we can rest in hope that He's going to bring about new creation, because He won it, and He promised it. And we're going to look at this in three points this morning. The backdrop of this test, the backdrop of this test, and then point two is the battle that takes place the battle that takes place, and then third is the breaking in of new creation, the breaking in of new creation. So first we're gonna look at the backdrop of this test. and We're gonna reread verses one and two. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit of the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus has just been baptized, and he's been led in the wilderness for forty days, and he's being tempted by the devil. Now think back with me to the Old Testament for a second. Who else does the New Testament say was baptized in the cloud and in the sea? Who else was led by the Holy Spirit through the wilderness, tempted to trust whether they would trust the Lord or not, based on whether they would believe you? when they were hungry. Israel, right? Israel. They were led through the wilderness for 40 years by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And what does the scripture say? That was the Holy Spirit leading them. The pillar was the Holy Spirit leading them through the wilderness. And Exodus 13, says, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness after being baptized, right? They were baptized in the sea and then Jesus is tempted by the devil. See, it's a rewind. It's a rewind and a rewrite. Jesus here is the true and better Adam is going through the same ordeals that Israel went through and failed. Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness and he's hungry. Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness and he's hungry. Israel was tempted by the, devil, by the devil in the wilderness and failed. And, and remember in our call this morning, the second part of that is a warning. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, right? That's, that's what he calls it. They tested me, so I loathed that generation. Israel failed the test whether, whether they would believe that God was with them, even though he's literally right there in the fire. Jesus goes for 40 days of hunger in the wilderness. He's still full of the Spirit, still trusting that God's really with him, guiding him by the Spirit, still trusting in his Father's provision and trusting in the Father's character. And he passes the test against those 40 days of victory. He comes out, notice that, he comes out. So we've got two verses of Jesus' time in the wilderness. And what Luke's showing us here is a contrast, right? We've got two verses about Jesus in the wilderness. How many books do we have about Israel in the wilderness? It's four. We've got four books about Israel's failures in the wilderness, to trust the Lord. Immediately after they're through the sea, they sing a very nice long song of praise, and then what do they do? I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty again. Is God really with us? And that's before they even get to Sinai. Three chapters between going, through the sea, and getting to Sinai, they've already complained and rebelled against the Lord three times. And the Lord has provided for them over and over again. They've rebelled over and over again. They failed. They failed, not Jesus. Jesus gets two verses here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the spirit of the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus follows the Spirit into the wilderness. He trusts the Lord without complaining, even though he's famished. Even though he's famished. And he ends those 40 days of trust. Israel failed to trust. Jesus trusted him completely. Israel complained. Jesus doesn't open his mouth here. Israel died in the wilderness. Jesus came out. Jesus came out of the wilderness. <laughs> By giving us just these two verses about Jesus, time in the wilderness, Luke is showing us the absolute contrast between Jesus and Israel. Jesus perfectly obeys the Father's will. Jesus perfectly trusts the Father's character that God is really with him. And he perfectly follows the Spirit's leading. But here's the thing, it's not just a rewind and rewrite of Israel. It's a rewind and rewrite Adam. The first Adam's failure. Look back with me at the genealogy in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. What do we have there? Why do we have this genealogy here? Starts with Jesus, goes back through all the Old Testament, the New Testament, into the Old Testament. And it goes to Joseph, to Boaz, or to David, to Boaz, and all these people does it end back? Who, who's the last person in Jesus' genealogy in Luke? It's Adam. And it's Adam the son of God. So, we've been brought through this rewind and rewrite of history, and one of the ways Luke's doing this is by rewinding history to Adam the son of God. But notice too, Jesus is the son of God. Luke 3, 21 through 22. What does God say when he comes out of his baptism? When all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased. Jesus is also the son of God, and he's the God of man. He's the son of God, and God the Father has sent his spirit down and given Jesus an official inspired declaration of reality. The reality is, you're my son, I'm well pleased in you. That's the reality. That's God's de- de- uh, declaration to Jesus. He's told him the reality whose son he is and whose side he's on. And now look at where Jesus is. Jesus just is in the wilderness, but he's, in, he's alone. He's in the one spot where he's all alone, representing humanity, giving He's been given a declaration of what the reality is, and then he's given a time where the devil can test him on whether he's going to believe the reality that God has told him. Jesus is a rewind, or this story is a rewind of history to the point of first Adam's failure. And that's why Jesus is in a wilderness. Notice this too. Adam had a garden, right? Adam had a garden that God gave him. It was full of fruit that he could eat anything from, and he was supposed to expand it and and have dominion over it after he passed the test of the tree. Whether he's going to believe God or not, Jesus is in a wilderness where there's not even a starting point yet for dominion because he's in the spot that Adam earned. Adam failed to cast the serpent out, and God kicked Adam out of the garden. Well, where are they? Now? They're in the wilderness. No fruit trees. There's some rocks. There's some sand. It's not a garden. It's a wilderness, because that's what Adam earned. So Jesus is standing as the last Adam in the place where first Adam burned for us, and he's now going to go through the same test Adam went through This brings us to our second point, the battle that takes place, the battle that takes place. Jesus undergoes the same test. Adam was called to undergo, because he's he's asked, am I going to believe God's word is true, or am I going to test it? If you have your Bibles with me, turn to Genesis 2 for a moment. Genesis 2. chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will really die. What's the temptation Adam and Eve face? Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not really die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's the test said, ask God what really he said. Now turn back with me to Luke 3. Luke 3. What does God say at Jesus' baptism? Luke 3, 21-22. You are my beloved son, and you are well pleased. That's the declaration of reality that Jesus has been given. And now what does the devil tempt to? What does he say? If you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus is going through the same test. Am I going to believe God's word, or am I going to test God's word and judge it with Satan? See, the issue is not what Satan is asking Jesus to do. See, Jesus can do whatever he wants with rocks. The issue is why Satan is asking Jesus to turn the rocks into bread. Don't believe me that Jesus can do anything. Think about this. He's the Lord of the Old Testament. He's the one who stood on the rock. He said, I will be standing on the rock when you strike at Moses. And what happens? He makes water come out of the rock for his people. What does he promise in Psalm 81? Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. He promises in Psalm 81, I'm going to make honey come out of the rock for my people. Later on in Luke, Jesus tells the Pharisees, if these people weren't worshiping me, the stones would worship me. And what does John preach back in chapter 3? He says, God is able to raise children of Abraham, even from these stones. See, Jesus can do whatever he wants with rocks, but what Satan's asking him to do, is not, it's not about the rocks. It's about trusting God's word. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. At any other point in time, Jesus could have done that. But at this moment, it's a test of whether he's going to believe God said. And what God said. So Satan's coming here, and he's asking Jesus the same question he asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say, can I believe what God said is true? And can I test this to see if it's true? So it's not what he's asking him to do, it's why he's asking him to do it. But in response, what does Jesus say? In response, Jesus responds with scripture. So the devil has asked him, has God really said? And Jesus says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus responds to the question of whether or not God has really said by repeating what God said with confidence. He just repeated what God said. And he's confident that that word holds authority. See, think about this for a minute. This is Jesus, right? This is the second person of the Trinity. If Jesus wanted to, he could have given the devil new and inspired revelation from God, because he's God. He could have given him new scripture from his mouth right that moment. But what's he doing? He's trusting that the word is what God has really said. He's quoting scripture. He has absolute confidence that what has been said is nothing less than the revealed will and word of God. So Jesus passes this test where Adam, first Adam failed because he gives the response that Adam didn't give. God really said, yeah, he did. And and I don't get to disobey this. God's word is the rule for my life. I really am the son of God. Not because I have to prove it to you, Satan, but because God said so. Man shall not live by bread alone. And he's saying, see, the word that came from God's mouth sustains me more Anything that you can make or geriate out of these stones. And unlike Israel, Jesus refuses to put the words of the devil in his mouth and test whether God's really with him or not. He doesn't cry, I'm hungry, give me food. He trusts in the word that he reveals God and his character to be the faithful provider in his time and choosing. And Jesus, er, and, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, "To you I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours." Now, as a side note here, some have raised the question about whether the devil was lying or not. and It's good to assume the devil's lying, but. So even though we know in the ultimate sense the answer is no, Satan couldn't have actually given these things to Jesus because he doesn't own the world ultimately, he's not in charge, he doesn't have final say. In the temporary sense, think about where we are in time, before the coming of Christ, what does Paul call him? He calls him the god of this world. Paul calls Satan the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians two two. Three times in the book of John, what does, what does Jesus say as he's going? In in the, in the last half of the book of John, it's called the book of Jesus hour. What's he saying as he goes into that hour in, in chapter 12 and 14 and 16? He calls Satan the ruler of this world. He says, now the ruler of this world will be judged and will be cast out. So in the ultimate sense, Satan doesn't own the world and he doesn't rule. But at that present time, he did rule in all the hearts and minds of every unbelieving Artaxerxes and Pharaoh and, and, and Caesar that ever was. He rules in the hearts of those who don't believe. See, and, and Satan's tempting him away from the plan of salvation. Because Notice this. Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God made us alive together in Christ. So Satan is tempting Jesus away from saving his own, with a share in the praise of all the unelect that ever were. So he's tempting him away from rightly God by going to the cross and dying for his own and loving us, and he's saying, "You can have all the glory that's due you, if you and and be the, the king without being the suffering king, if you just love me." So. And this is a real temptation. Notice this. Jesus did go through temptation in the garden. Not in the ultimate sense you know, God can't sin. But he did pray, Father, if it is you will, let this stuff pass from me." Nobody wants to suffer the full wrath of God. Satan's tempting him out of doing what God has called him to do. But again, by tempting Jesus Without the cross, what Satan is again implicitly implicitly testing Jesus about is are you going to believe God's word? Why would you trust the Father, and why would you trust his will for your life if he says you're his son, and then he makes you go through this? Why would you do that? Why would you trust his character and his will as he reveals it in his word? God isn't treating you like the thing he says you are. If you were really a son, why would he make you do this? If you bow to me, even though I don't think you're his son, or I say you're not his son, I'll still treat you as if you're the thing I say you're not. See, it's, it's a temptation again. Has God really said? Has God really said? But again, Jesus replies with absolute trust in the Father's will and, and his word, and so the devil's lies. He knows that God has said, you're only supposed to worship me. And so he trusts the Father to glorify him in his time and place of Jesus. So Jesus is once again succeeding where first Adam failed because he's giving the answer Adam did. I believe God's word and I don't have to test it. But this brings us to the final temptation. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan is pulling out his best trick in his playbook. It's the trick that worked on Adam and Eve. He's using scripture. twisting. When has God really said it didn't work, what did he do? He said. It's because the tree is the thing that God says it is. And because the tree is what God says it is, it's a tree of knowing good and evil, you should disobey God and eat it. See, it's, it's taking, the, it's, it's now twisting God's purpose in revealing the things he's revealed. And, and Satan did this to them in the garden. He said, not just has God really said, but because God has said, disobey God, and he's doing it here too. He takes Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is the one we sang before at the beginning of his service, right? And it's it's a it's a call to confidence in the Father's care for us. That's the overwhelming meaning of the Psalm. It's not, hey, go exalt yourself. That's the disobedience. It's because this is what God has said, you can trust in him. It's because this is who God is and what he does, you can trust in him. But again, it's twisting the scriptures taking. A psalm that's meant to inspire humble confidence in the revealed word of God and and humble confidence in God because of who he is. And instead of doing that, Satan's saying you should use it as an opportunity for self-exaltation. And he's quite literally told Jesus to jump to the wrong conclusion. It's, it's, It's taking that inspired word that should inspire humble confidence and trust and it's saying you should exalt yourself. But again... Think about what this is. It's it's a test. Are you really the son of God? And do you want to test God's word to see if it's true? Who who else is in the temple? Right there on the temple. Who else is in the temple between two angels? Who's got a seat that's covered by angels and lives in the temple? It's God. He's again saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you go be the monkey? You're the Son of God. Why are you going through this stuff? Why don't you shuffle off this body? Why don't you stop being weak and sick and hungry and tired for your people? And why don't you just go fight? Why don't you go be making use of your majestic dignity? Why are you going through this humiliation? But again, Jesus responds with trust in the Father's Word. He trusts the Father's word and he trusts that it's true and it doesn't need to be tested. See, it's it's asking to test whether this is true or not. And he knows that the Father's will for his life and the Father's will to glorify him in his time and choosing is better than any plan that Satan can come up with in his forefront. Look at Jesus' response in verse 12. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil just tempted him to test whether the Lord's word is really true and Jesus, responded this third time by taking that stated confidence up a notch. Notice this too, taking stated confidence in the word up a notch. See, for the past two temptations, Satan has been saying, has God really said? But what has he said now? He's gotten on the it is written wagon. Notice this, Satan got on the it is written wagon. And he said, well, it is written, you shall." Er, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So, in response to Satan getting on the it is written wagon, Jesus goes, it is said. It is said. I submit to the word of God as the authority for my life because it's God-breathed, and it's true. God really said it. I am the Lord your God. You're not supposed to be tested. Not because I have to prove it to you through test, but because that's what God said. God's word isn't something that Moses just made up to get the Israelites to be quiet in the desert. God's word isn't just clever poetry that people came up with because they were really inspired by the wine or something. It's God's brilliant? I don't stand in judgment over this. It stands in judgment over me. This is a stark contrast with first Adam and Israel. Adam and Eve joined the serpent in standing apart and trying to say, "We stand as arbiters over what's true, as judges over what's true." And Jesus says, "What well, my Father says is true, and I'm not going to test it." Israel decided to complain and believe. You know what? Maybe God's not really with us, as he said. Jesus trusts his father's word completely. Jesus won this test as the last Adam, the better Adam that was better than any other type of shadow, who failed to trust God's word, to obey it, and to cast the serpent out. See, that's what Adam was supposed to do. He was supposed to work the garden and keep it. And part of keeping it means you need to kick the serpent out. You need to guard it. He didn't do what Jesus did. Adam and Israel failed their tests, and they failed to inherit the land permanently. Jesus was obedient, and because he, won, he, he passed this test, he secured the right to win new creation and inherit it for us forever. Adam and Israel earned exile. Adam got kicked out of the garden. Israel got vomited out of the land for their unbelief. Jesus won Jesus won. And this brings us to our third point. We're, we're close to the end. Third point, the breaking in of new creation. The breaking in of new creation. Read with me again, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan knows what just happened. He knows Jesus just won. He knows Jesus just passed this test and he can't win. See, Satan quoted Psalm 91, right? Psalm 91, and he quoted verses 11 and 12. The father's care, but he left out verse 13. Notice this when Satan quoted this to Jesus, he left out verse 13. What we'll was verse 13 of Psalm 91? You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Satan knows what's going to happen, he knows his head's going to get crushed. This is the promise that's in the word of God in Psalm 91 and in Genesis three, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and this is what's going to happen. If he doesn't run, his head's going to be crushed. He's been defeated. He needs to retreat until an opportune time and he's going to rally. He's going to try and do it again in Gethsemane and he's going to try and make one less push, but he's lost. This is the first of many defeats for to come. And and this also means that because Satan's retreating, Christ is beginning his conquest. Notice this. He's breaking in new creation into this present evil age. Notice what he does when he gets back. He's bringing people in to new creation. They're in Christ, and they are new creation already. He's bringing people in as soon as he sets foot in Galilee. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went about him report about and went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Jesus returns in conquest of territory of hearts and minds. He's just one. The beginning of Jesus' rightly gotten glory starts the instant he rejects getting it wrongly. Notice that Jesus just rejected the devil's temptation for all the illegitimate honor in the world. And what happens now? The word about him is beginning to spread and he's glorified by all. And notice, he just rejected getting it wrongly at the temple. That's the last temptation in the book of Luke. Now what's he doing? He's being glorified in all their synagogues that he's teaching in. Jesus, even at the end of chapter four, starts casting out demons. Because he won. He won. And he's binding the strong man because he won this desert showdown. The foundation for the new creation that he brings down fully of his making is, is fully on the last day brought down. But it begins here. The first foothold is here, because he won the right to do new creation, to make new creation, because of his victory and his obedience here to the Father. So what this means for us is that we can trust Jesus is our better Adam. It's our better last Adam who accomplished what all the other, other types of shadows didn't. And so the call today is to trust in him. To trust in him. For we can trust Jesus to be our perfect righteousness and our perfect holiness and our perfect ability to come before God and be looked at as holy because his works like this one that he did here are on our account we're no longer in adam first Adam. we're now in christ and god looks at us and sees christ's work like the one here so where we have failed to keep god's law and to obey and trust his word christ and obeyed and trusted on our behalf have. in adam we died but by christ's obedience we are made alive we failed to stay in the garden we failed to build the kingdom of god Christ accomplished for us what we never could here in the desert. So in our failures this week, and in our failures even this morning, the call is to look to Christ to learn new creation for us, and who promises all his benefits to us, not by our works, but by his work here. And not just by his death, but also by his life. We're to look to Christ and His finished work. And we know now that because of His finished work, the God that Christ trusted is our God. He's our God too. And that means our God is working by His Holy Spirit to conform us more and more into the image of His beloved Son. His beloved Son, who won this victory for us here and who won the right for us to be a new creation. Would you join with me in thanking Him? Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of your Son. We thank you that it's your power for our salvation, that Christ has done everything we need, that his work is finished. We pray that we would trust him more and more, that we would love him and love you more and more for sending him. But Lord, we also pray that we would live in light of this reality, that we are now your new creation. We pray that we would be lights and witnesses to the goodness that you have shown us in Christ. Lord, we pray these things again not because we deserve them, but in (laughs) Jesus' name. Amen.